Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here, joined in the studio with Mike for what will be episode 99.5 or 99.75. It's hard to believe, but we're coming up on episode 100. And this would be that, but we've been telling ourselves we'll do something with the four of us, hopefully, for episode 100. So maybe we should do 99.25 in case it takes a while to get Ben here. <laughs> it's it's Holy Week, and so the timing wasn't great, and so we're just going to throw one out there, and we'll we'll do 100 when we get to it. Yeah, so I know I'm going to be going to Michigan, going home to Detroit, going to get to see my parents, taking the five kids. My wife uh, has to stay and work, but uh, um, Mike, I know you're going to be with family for a while, and it just wasn't going to work well for us to be able to get together unless we skip church, which... Obviously, we didn't want to do, so since three of us go to the same church, and uh, our pastor is Mike's brother, and so we'd get tattled on easily um, if we missed. But uh, we're going to be talking a little bit today about Easter 2, and Easter 2 is one of the Sundays of the church year where if you had your druthers as a pastor, you would have everyone there because the readings are just phenomenal. Um, it is, at its core, what Christianity is all about, and yet you're tired for Easter 2. You just had Holy Week. And your people, um, some of them are, they've been there for Holy Week and they end up taking that Sunday off. And it's two in a row is a lot for some of our people. Yeah, and so it ends up not being one of the best attended um, Sundays. But we're going to get into Easter 2, uh, Thomas, absolution, stuff like that. Just a reminder, we are part of the 1517 Podcasting Network encourage you to check that out if you get a chance. I will plug uh, just briefly um, our friend, uh, oops, accidentally started playing it, um, Dan Van Voris, uh, who was of the podcast Virtue in the Wasteland, which has now come to its end. He has started a new project, uh, the Christian History Almanac, which it looks like it's going to be daily, about five minutes daily on events from church history. And uh, if there's anyone who would be good at that, it is Dan, who is a, a very gifted historian. And uh guy just seems to read super quick and like crazy. So um, someone who would be capable of being up on something for a daily podcast. I, those I hope it's in order, but knowing how it works, probably not. But I like things and I want to, I want them to start linear. I want them to start in Pentecost and then go, but I'm sure that's not going to be. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure how they'll do it, but I encourage you to check that out. The trailer is up. Um, but that's the Christian History Almanac. You can find that um, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can go ahead and subscribe if you want to not forget and have those pop up uh, for you so you remember to check them out. Also, if you haven't yet, we would encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, which is priority number one, right? Um, always make sure you come back to us. Um, but that really helps when you do subscribe, and you can set it up not to download 87 episodes, um, but just to keep the most recent. But it really kind of gives us a sense for um, where the conversation is at, uh, how many are listening. Um, so please do consider doing that. Also, if you find an episode helpful or a devotion, um, we have devotions for Holy Week that have been up or going out. We hope to get back to being regular with those. Um, those are kind of an avocational venture, uh, venture for us, so we appreciate the pastors who are writing. But this time of year gets a little busy, so we did get a little behind, but those devotions have been coming out. Um, please do share the episodes, the Winging It Sessions, um, the devotions. We, we do really greatly appreciate you doing that. You can rate and review us on iTunes. Last I checked, we were over 120 for that, which is just amazing because 
a couple months ago, Caleb's kind of challenge was us to, to us was to get to 100 by October when we would be in San Diego again. And uh, you guys just have been amazing. And so it's very humbling, and we appreciate it. Uh, and to Ben's consternation, we're still hanging around a 5.0. He thinks we should be at like a 4. He thinks that's more authentic. <laughs> um, but uh, we do appreciate the I very— I think we should be at a 3 just— just because of shame. Yeah, I'm surprised Ben hasn't gone on and just like given us a one to lower that total. Um, but speaking of San Diego, Mike and I will be out in San Diego for the Here We Still Stand conference in October. Um, we will be live recording, Let the Bird Fly. Um, and then I also will be leading a sectional on Christian freedom. And, uh, and so if you're in the area or you're looking for a destination type conference to go to, it's kind of nice, Mike, huh? It was. It's it was on very the nice. ocean. There were seals. Um, there's like, uh, not the kind of trees we have here. There's palm trees and, uh, Peter didn't go on one, but there's those bird scooters. Those look very fun. Um, but just a wonderful place to be and a great group of people to meet. Um, so if you're interested in that in October, there's less than a hundred tickets left and it will sell out. There's no doubt about that. It's, it sells out every year. Um, but tickets are $199, but you will get a discount, as a listener um, of $25, if you use the promo code PNET, so uh, P like Paul, net 19 at checkout. And you can do that at herewestillstand.org. Now, before we make this even longer than we expected it to be, why don't you give us the disclaimer, Mike, and we'll get into the main topic. Before that, uh, we'd like uh, to welcome some listeners in Las Vegas. We had um, the last, I think, main episode, we had um, Abby and Aaron Strong, who had served in Las Vegas. and. Um, there was we have some we had some Vegas listeners before that nice. and maybe a few more now. They took a break so. from the slot machines. Yeah, to thank you. So we appreciate that. We should send some stickers that they can hand out in the casinos. That reminds me. Uh, we should probably give another shout out. Uh, one of our our theology majors, uh, Grace, has a little sister who has come to a couple of our events, and we gave her a, a shout out. Um, Peter and I did a few episodes ago, and we got a very nice email from Grace thanking us for that. So. Uh, Bella, keep listening. You are becoming our favorite listener. Get your sister to show you how to do an iTunes review for us. <laughs> uh, that would be great. But Bella, we hope you're still listening, and you, we hope uh, you have a great Holy Week, and we appreciate uh, the kind words and that you're uh, you're listening to the podcast. We hope you get something out of it. And as Bella already knows, this show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. And for this week, uh, Timely, we are going to choose uh, the Gospel reading for traditionally read on the Sunday after Easter Sunday, so Easter 2. And it is the story of the disciples 
on that first Easter um, Sunday. Uh, Jesus appears to them behind closed doors and locked windows, and they tell Thomas, uh, you know, we saw the risen Lord. He doesn't believe it, and so he's forever known as uh, the doubter. And then a week later, he is with his disciples, and Jesus appears uh, to them again and famously says, stop doubting and believe. But there's more to the story here, I think, because here is also where... um, I would say he institutes holy absolution. And so when we look at the sacraments, um, and I'm going to define the sacraments as um, communion, baptism, and um, absolution. It's a very uh, confessional can, way to do it. We can argue about that later. Um, we should maybe do an episode on that. That would be that would be a good one. And the free-for-all could be, how many sacraments do you believe there are? I think you can make a case for one, two, two and a half, three, three and a half, four, Seven, seven, eight. 77, who knows? Yeah. Um, but it's an interesting and I think very fruitful conversation when you think about it. Anyway, um, during Monday, Thursday is when we have the institution of um, Holy Communion. Um, the baptism was always around, but uh, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's kind of tied to ascension. And then we have this Easter, another big event in the um, in the church here, we have the institution, uh, you know, maybe that's too strong of a word, but of holy absolution. Of course, absolution was This around, is, I mean, where Luther goes in the catechism, yeah, though. Where, he sa- where Jesus is going to say, if you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. If you prefer the term, the keys, that would be fine, too. And so there's a lot going on here. There's uh, what's faith. Um, it, during this connection, John also says, these are written that you may believe. And so you have uh, the, the power of the word there. Um, you have kind of empirical evidence given to Thomas. How does that play out in faith? So um, there's a lifetime of sermons here, and and, uh, it's one of those Sundays in the year where uh, even if you're on a three-year cycle of reading, uh, this gospel is always there. Uh, Like uh, Christmas Day is always John 1, and uh, a good preacher's never going to get bored with that, those texts. he could preach a, a whole career and never preach the same sermon on those texts. There's just so much there. So um, do you want to read it? I have the NIV 84 here. You you have the ESV. You want to go with the ESV? That's sure. your preferred. And I've got, so I've got my Lutheran study. You there notice you the cover I have? That's very nice. It's kind of a Baptist thing, though, having the zip cover. I thought about that when you leave it in class after... Uh, I don't know what class, Pauline epistles you Yeah, because I have 110, and then you have class, and then I just leave my Bible. Somewhere. And I don't mess with it at all. No, I've, I've actually I left, been very impressed with I that. If I left um, something in there between classes, what would you do with that? I would not mess with it. You if, would if mess you with it. If you asked me nicely not to mess with it. If I asked you nicely, then you would absolutely do it, because you wouldn't know what sin right. was until I told you. You're more sanctified than me. Yeah, you have been very good about that, because if it were hidden, I don't know what I would do. Um <laughs> But I will read the account then, and uh, maybe um, just to point out briefly, so uh, Luther will point then to John 20, and he points to uh, John 20, 22 to 23 in the small catechism for where is this written for the office of the keys, which is what we call it. So, Mike, how about if I go ahead and start with verse 22, just since oh, Luther's sure, going to yes. use that? Oh, sure, yes. Maybe even 19. That's what I originally meant, 19 to 31. Okay, well, then I will begin there. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, so Sunday, the, do- the doors being locked, um, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said, them, he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. 
Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said again, uh, said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and we'll get to that, and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And then John now explains the purpose of writing this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Um, and this will sound familiar to those who know the service of word and sacrament in our Wisconsin Synod Red Hymnal. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And uh, I will toss it out to you, Mike, to start off wherever you want to start with that. Let's start with that first section, absolution there. So uh, the scene is the disciples um, are in fear of the Jewish leaders there, and rightfully so. Uh, their leader just got killed. Yeah, and, and so it's right for them to think we're probably next. Um, perhaps they're in the upper room. I don't know if we know that for sure or not, but the same, I mean, it kind of makes sense that the same room that they rented out a few days earlier for the Passover celebration. And it's a, John tells us that it's a miracle without telling us it's a miracle because the, the doors are locked, right? And so Jesus, in his resurrected glorious body, appears. And that's enough for them. And uh, we could probably talk about peace. I don't know if we want to talk about it too much. There's so much going on here. But uh, peace as in, um, I'm the Prince of Peace here to you. Um, the idea also of that it's, it's, it's a greeting, but more than just a greeting. Um, the peace of forgiveness. Um, you're going to be okay, even though you may die martyr's deaths tomorrow. In their mind, that was certainly a possibility. Peace be with you. Um, I, 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 the resurrected and clearly the divine here, do not come with wrath, but with peace. There's a lot going on and, there, And too. Luther will say, when you see peace in the Bible, think forgiveness of sins, that peace is at its core the forgiveness of sins. Right, or, or you cannot have peace or, or the Hebrew concept, shalom, without first being okay with God, right? right. That, that it has to have the forgiveness of sins there. And then uh, really a, a ministry thing going on here. Um, I'm going to send you just as the Father sent me. And wow, I mean, what a compliment, right? What a, what a show of respect to the, to the ministry of the church there that, that Christ gives, that just as I became man sent by the Father in heaven, like arguably the greatest miracle of all, Right, becoming God, becoming man, for the sake of the salvation of of humanity, that in that similar way, I'm going to send you out into that humanity to give exactly what I am giving you, which is peace and the forgiveness of Christ. To it, raise them through the forgiveness it, of sins. It's remarkable um, when you think about it uh, how much He respects the church and individuals. Um, within the, the ministry, but also those who carry out the consolation of the brothers, which is we're going to talk about in a second. 
Uh, just remarkable. He lifts us to a startling deg degree uh, in our vocations as well, as I think Gene Veith had once said. Um, and then really uh, absolution here, and I, I harp on this, and, and some people get kind of roll their eyes at me a little bit here, but if you forgive one their sins, they are forgiven. It's not God loves you, God forgives you, I forgive you, and it's the power. It's as just as the Father sent the Son. So the Son sends the Father with that authority to forgive sins. And so pastors, please, 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 now that I'm in the, in the pews, don't tell me about forgiveness. Forgive me. Don't preach about the gospel. Preach the gospel. I mean, if I could say, if I could be arrogant enough to give uh, unsolicited advice to pastors out there. Forgive me my sins. Don't tell me about it. Actually, forgive me. Uh, I, it is a pet peeve of mine, but I think, I think it's a righteous pet peeve. What do you think, Wade? Well, I think it really is a distinctive of Lutheran theology. It's something that, um, among Protestants at least, Protestants get really uncomfortable with, uh, when they come to a Lutheran church and they hear the corporate mm -hmm. absolution that the pastor doesn't say your sins are forgiven, but says as a called servant of Christ and by his authority, um, or in the old hymn, as a called and ordained servant of the word. Or in the stead of Christ, I. I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I think there's something to um, that Lutherans understand well about how God operates in that we insist on um, operating in such a way. And I always prefer that sort of absolution, by the way. Um, I'm not degrading the other absolution, but, you know. Right. That God has given you this person, a fellow sinner, as he now restores sinners here in this locked room, uh, to be a vehicle of God's grace to you. And he says, as sure as it is when when I say it, so sure it is as when they say it, um, that your sins are forgiven. And, and there's few things that really are more difficult to believe than an absolution. Um <clears throat> I, I used to joke with my people not to hear the confession and absolution with Lutheran ears, meaning, yes, we go in and we say we've been bad, and then pastor says it's okay. <clears throat> but when you, uh, Mike, you sometimes say, you know, the, the law might hit an honest person. And when we're finally that honest person and the law hits us, it can be extremely hard to believe we are forgiven. Um, and Jesus, knowing that, puts a face on it, right? He, he sends a preacher to us, and that preacher might be with the Consolation of Brethren, might be a friend, a parent, uh, an acquaintance on the street, um, but he leaves no doubt about it. Um, it's not just God forgives you, and then now you have to take the step in your head of like connecting that to, to yourself. Um, it is, I forgive you. And so he gives these keys then, this binding key and loosing key, loosing being opening the door to heaven, right? The forgiving um, key uh, to the church. And that really is, the message the church has that no one else has, right? The um, the uh, otherwise we might as just might as well just be Dr. Phil or AA with not as good a coffee or the Elks with not as good a beer. Uh, but this is the the heart and core message of the church, and notice that it flows from the resurrection. Um, it's the resurrected Christ who now comes and says, when the preacher says this to you, it's as if I myself were here showing you my wounds and saying it myself. And we sometimes look at how he treats Thomas and think, well, maybe he's being kind of harsh with him. Uh, but really, in the end, he's acting for Thomas's own good, too, of driving home the forget. You know what? Put your hand in my side. Put your fingers in the wounds. Do what you got to do. 
but know that you're forgiven. But notice how that forgiveness then is rooted in the physical body of the historic Christ. As as sure as he had those wounds, that surely uh, Thomas and all of us are forgiven. Let me rant for one more minute, and then we can move on. Um, it's it's the starting my timer. <laughs> it's the difference between something being abstract and something being real, and that if there's anything that is that marks Christianity from other philosophies and religion, and specifically Lutheranism, is that gritty realness there. And uh, there's no there's no degree of separation between the forgiveness and the sinner, right? I forgive between you. Between God and the sinner. Yeah, it? yeah, and the, it's it's closing in God's closing in on the sinner there's there's no doubt there and I worried very much so about um when this corner gets into corporate versus individual uh, confession and absolution but I, I I knew my people I knew what they did there was no there was no there was very little secrets in in small town here I knew and um I knew they doubted forgiveness but it's it's quite a especially when someone came in and literally said out loud I had an abortion or whatever it's going to be, that I forgive you, that there is no, there's no doubt there. There's no wiggle room there. There's no, oh, well, he reminded me of something that happened some other time. No, right now. And I, I get the idea. I can remember I had a, uh, did a jail service uh, years ago, and uh, we did the service with the absolution. And this guy from Chicago who somehow got himself into trouble in Western Minnesota was there. And he was Baptist. And and he literally stopped me in the service when I said, I forgive you all your sins. He's like, what? What are you saying? And uh, so we opened up John 20. And I don't know if I convinced him on that moment there, but explained to him, like, this is, this is why we say it this way, um, so that there, is, that there is no doubt there. And I get that people say, well, now it's the power in the, the, power is in, the um, in the individual priest or pastor and that can be abused. Of course it can be abused, but that does not negate its use. And it's always remarkable because we don't want, the, the typical line is, well, you don't want to put power into the church or the ministry or the person, the pastor, the priest. It's in the word. Exactly. Right. These words, I forgive you. Um, the power is in the actual words saying it. And if you, if you say, if you, if you kind of hedge those words a little bit, because we don't, we want to protect uh, us from the 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 ministry, the history of the church, and the ministry being being abusive. Well, you're also taking away from that actual word. Just say the words. Um, so it 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 bothers me. Well, and we tend to be pretty good. I would say in our circles, our people tend to be pretty good. Of baptism does something. The Lord's Supper does something. And we need to remember that the same is true of the absolution. The and, the, absolution and the blessing. Right. Yeah. It is it is doing something and it so it's it's not a it's not a word that becomes true when you believe it. When I say to you, I forgive your sins, they are forgiven whether you believe it or not. Um, it is a word of fact, right? Something is happening. And you can that, reject that forgiveness, right, but the, the power same is with baptism or the Lord's Supper. And uh and this there actually was, you mentioned, you know, corporate absolution. Um, what happens in the church service is what we mean by that. Um, and there was actually a controversy pretty on, early on in the Lutheran Church. Uh, Oziander in Nuremberg um, didn't like corporate absolution because he thought it might take away from individual absolution that people would think, well, now there's no point going to that. And Luther and Melanchthon kind of both came down on this and said, no, people should still go to individual absolution because this is a great treasure, and that could be a separate episode for us. Um, but what they, they settled on was basically 
corporate absolution, preaching is nothing but absolution. Mm -hmm. At its core, good preaching is absolution as well. Every proclamation of the gospel is absolution. And that's where in the American setting, um, and I would say this is coming to the Lutheran church, through some of our like wanting to borrow evangel- evangelicalism's kind of evangel- evangelistic methods, <clears throat> like how to do evangelism, we almost get this view of like we have to just get a certain number of facts out there. We have to give these people this information so they can do something with it. Assumes the assumes a free will. Right, assumes a free will rather than we just need to do something to these people, which is what the absolution does. And uh, someone who's great on this is is Jim Nestigan. If you've ever heard Jim Nestigan tell stories about, he has had some absolutions in some weird places. He tells a great story of being on a plane, and I believe the guy was a Vietnam veteran, and he found out Nestigan was a preacher, and the guy just kind of unloaded on him all these things he felt terrible terrible about in his life. And Jim talks about, I think the plane was landing or something like that, but he unbuckles. And if you've ever seen Jim, he's a big man. He's a big man with a. Uh, booming voice and just a fantastic like Dakota-ish type uh, accent and he just stood up and put his hands on the guy's head and and absolved him and uh, you know you you think about how out of place that might seem on a plane but that story's always stuck with me as you know really a proper understanding of what takes place when you apply the gospel you are applying the gospel to that and for all I know that guy was like what in the world are you doing um, although Jim says the guy was weeping, right? They both were crying. But uh, one of the privileges of being in the pastoral office is that even if many of our churches don't have the practice of individual absolution like they used to have in the past, private absolution, pastors do sometimes just get to have those moments where they bust an absolution on someone who isn't expecting it, um, who doesn't even realize that's what they need, and you just see those words do something and, you know, uh, the person melts as the pastor, you're kind of melting. And you just recognize that there's a power to those words that we so easily take for granted. Um, but this is, you mentioned before too, Mike, um, with baptism and in the Great Commission, Christ will say, go and baptize all nations. What this really is, is baptismal, right? This is a reliving of our baptism. And so when we have our service, and you can go back and listen to the early winging it sessions on our series on the divine service, um, what do we do? We come and we say we're the baptized, which is why the pastor says not. We begin in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I always want to throw my hymnal at them when they do that. (laughs) Um, But in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are the baptized. And then what do we do? We relive that baptism. We confess our sins. And then the pastor um, absolves us. And this is really the whole of the Christian life. But this is the message. The absolution at its core um, is the one thing the church has that the world doesn't. It's the church's reason for existence, uh, and it, it really is the core of Christian preaching. And so I think, uh, you know, even how I, I always feel bad for Thomas. He's forever doubting Thomas. And I think church tradition says he was skinned alive um, for his beliefs. He died a horrible death. I can't remember exactly how he died it. Um, I think we we believe from church tradition. He made it as far as India. Um, but here's someone who was a martyr who gave his life for the faith, but he's forever known as like doubting Thomas. And I always wonder like if he's up in heaven, like every Easter too, like, come on, can we let it go? Like it was one bad time, one bad day, you know? Um, but I think at the end, Thomas wouldn't even mind us knowing him as doubting Thomas because he would know that in the end, um, all of us can identify and what that doubting Thomas points us to 
is the wo- the wounds of Christ, and then the keys um, that bring those wounds uh, to us personally, deliver it. We sing a lot in Lent um, about going to the cross, the journey to the cross. But in the end, we can't go to the cross. Um, you know, Luther joked that so many churches at the time of the Reformation claimed to have a piece of the cross. If you put them all together, it'd be a cross so big that Christ couldn't lift it. Um, we just had the terrible fire at Notre Dame, and um, I don't mean to make light of that, but, you know, there's the relics that everybody's happy that they rescued, and there's supposedly the crown of thorns in there that I'm, of course, as a Lutheran skeptical of them being the crowns of thorn that, uh, crown of thorns that Jesus wore. But even that, let's say that were the real crown of thorns. Well, there's no power in viewing those that crown. Um, the power is in the word. And so even if there were, if we still had the cross, going to that cross would accomplish nothing for you. It's the preached word, it's the absolution that actually brings the, the fruit of the cross to you, um, which brings the empty tomb to you. And so I think that's really the, the power of Easter too. Yeah, and then if you're going to go to absolution, which is baptismal, if you're going to go to to uh, the to baptism, you are at the cross because you're crucified with Christ, right? right. And so you Romans you, six, you do go to to the cross, but it's in it's a it's in the waters of baptism, and then the connection of the sign of the cross with the invocation, the blessing, at the absolution, connected to um, uh, baptism traditionally is is beautiful. Um, we should save some of our bullets someday. We'll do we'll do a whole thing on absolution and and probably. When we eventually get there, who knows when? We got to put it on our chalkboard. We have a chalkboard of ideas. Mike now. has written a lot on this, and I, I, I just briefly, I, there's probably some who will listen to this and say, "Well, you're not saying anything about the binding key." We'll, well get to church get discipline in the binding key at some point. Um, I think our emphasis for this is the connection of absolution to Easter. So we are emphasizing the losing key, but obviously, I mean, you read First Corinthians five. Um, the early church recognized you needed to have the binding key as well. We do warn the impenitent, those who are not sorry for their sins, those who choose to identify with their sins um, through living in them, practicing them, whether that be a liar or a gossip, or you pick the sin. Um, All of us have our own, so think of your own sin, you know, in that spot. But but I think what we're really trying to get at is, is this is what Jesus chooses to task his church with as he appears to um, this first church, right? The, um, this frightening uh, kind of ecclesiastical gathering in a locked upper room. I'll just note too, um, just as a side note, you'll note that Jesus comes to them through a locked door. He comes with his resurrected body, yet he walks through the door. This is always something helpful to remember with the Lord's Supper. People will say, well, how can Christ be on so many altars all at once, and how can he be there with his body? Well, we see here already he has a resurrected and glorified body, he has a true body. That's the whole point of him showing his wounds and elsewhere saying, give me something to eat. <clears throat> He's not a ghost. And yet, you know, you're free to try to walk through a locked door. Um, don't hold us liable if you break your nose. But um, but we see this resurrected, glorified body um, of Christ as well. And and that has Christological implications, of course, too, and uh, uh, the hypostatic union, and we'll probably have to keep that for another day. But uh, let's move on to the next week. So... After this Easter Sunday experience with uh, Jesus Christ, the disciples cannot help but tell. And so they tell their buddy Thomas. Thomas does not believe it. Um, and in fact, is quite skeptical in his unbelief. He's not just saying, oh, I don't know about that. He says, unless, right? And so his, in the English, unless is, is a powerful word to me. Um, unless you do this for me, Jesus, then 
um, I will not believe. And so a little bit of a bargaining with God here, uh, you, you know, show me something, God, and then I will, I will do that. And um, here we kind of mentioned the power of the word versus you know, assuming a free will that somebody could choose to believe in God. And yet at the same time, uh, just a little bit later, Jesus does give some empirical proof to that. And so it is kind of interesting. How does that play out? Right. It's not that Jesus says, believe as if it was just kind of this mystical thing that was detached from reality. Right. No, not absolutely not. Um, at it's the, not for Thomas, some Kierkegaardian leap of faith. It's, no. Jesus is right there. And at some point, though, it is you need to have the spirit, right? And so those things aren't mutually exclusive. Like, okay, here's evidence, and that's the wrong path to give towards people who are skeptical. And um, at the same time, yeah, it's going to be the spirit. But the problem is not with evidence. The problem is, is not with the empirical nature of what Jesus Christ did dying and rising, things that can be verified, his body is there, touch my open wounds. Um, but rather the problem is with us. The problem is with our ability. And so there are occasions where God does give empirical proof, miracles and, and such. Um, certainly the res resurrection is empirical proof and our faith is based in facts. And so uh, for Thomas, you know what? It was word plus empirical proof. God gave it to him. And that's what God did, and God bless him. For you may say to us, but he doesn't give us empirical proof. Well, hold on for a second here. He gives you this document that says that he rose from the dead. And so do I have empirical proof that, um, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated? In Ford Theater? I actually have video of it. Do you have video of it? I found it, it on the internet. Um, <clears throat> no, but I, I have empirical proof in the sense, in the sense, that uh, this was documented, not strictly empirical in the sense of, of being able to, to witness it. But we, epistemology is a whole other topic. But I do have these things written. And that's where John ends up this section. These things are written that you may believe. Thomas got the flesh of Christ. Well, you know what? So do I. And not only that, but I have it documented. And so uh, this idea, don't fall into the trap of thinking, okay, Thomas was ugh, a doubter, Thomas, and he had to have this physical proof. But what's better, blessed are they who have not seen and yet believed. It's not a competition, right? He's just saying, blessed are you, Thomas, that you have believed because I said to you and showed you. Blessed are the people who will hear and still have the power of the word and believe. And uh, at the same time, but Mildred, who never gets to see my wound, she gets extra points. Right. Uh, and then when I and then I say, well, I, I'm somehow less. I have less evidence than Thomas. I can make an argument that I have more evidence than Thomas because right. I have it written down, and I have uh, the hindsight of history. I have the whole story laid out before me. I have, I have eleven of twelve experience. apostles who testified to their own death. Hello, I actually have. I'm in a better. You could argue, <coughs> and it's kind of a, a moot point because it's by the Spirit. But you could argue that I, a person that was baptized, brought up in the church went to Lutheran high school, college, and seminary, had this Bible. You have Pauline, like, uh, credentials. This is like Philippians. Is it three am, or four? I am, Paul lists I'm all as Lutheran as anybody. And I have a, probably have uh, more evidence than Thomas did. And so, again, it's not a competition. But back to doubting Thomas. I, I, 
I have in my mind always when I think of Doubting Thomas is uh, Michelangelo or Michelangelo Caravaggio's painting. Instead of Jesus with a halo on his head, like from Duccio or something like that, from the from uh, 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 the early early medieval era, you know, pointing eloquently at his side, and Thomas with his hands up saying, "Oh, I believe now," but uh, taking the hand of Thomas, and in uh, Thomas with you can see the the ripples in his skin in his forehead being forced as Jesus takes his hand and almost shoves it into his side as in stop doubting and believe and if you knew the story of Caravaggio and, and his his wild living and he was a he was a gritty sinner and that grittiness of Jesus and uh, Thomas meant a lot to him um, and so uh, it's a passionate experience uh, uh, for Thomas I think and and for me, I, I think about this as very a passionate thing um, uh, of Thomas really being emotional here and uh, Jesus having not being, I imagine him not being very light in his tone when he says, stop doubting and believe, you know, put your finger here, but, and, and, and yet not scolding either, right. but just uh, a very, a very passionate uh, gravitas kind of situation. I think just to bring out, you mentioned the spirit there too, um, the importance of what Jesus does there, breathing on them. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, in the Old Testament, in Genesis, right, one of the first things that's going to happen is the spirit is hovering on, over the earth. Um, God breathes life into Adam, and the Hebrew word for that is just a great word. Mike, correct me if I'm getting the Hebrew word wrong. Um, but if I remember correctly, it's ruach. And I always make my students say that out loud because you have to breathe to say it, right? Ruach. Um, in the uh, Greek, um, the word for breath is going to be pneuma, also just a great word that sounds like what it says. You have to breathe to say pneuma, and we get pneumonia from that, right? A problem with breathing with the lungs. Um, but this recreative breath of Christ, um, just as he breathed life into Adam, now so through the word, through absolution, he breathes life into us. And what is that breathing of life? It is the giving of the Spirit. And so... We will have, uh, it's a ways off, but it will come quickly, more quickly than we expect. Uh, Pentecost will come and the sending of the Spirit. But to remember um, that that same Spirit that Jesus now gives to his apostles, he uh, gives to us through the preaching of the Word. God is, what are the Scriptures called? Um, what does Paul tell Timothy? They are God-breathed, right? Um, God is still breathing life into us, and that is the gift of the preaching of the Word. That is the gift of absolution to the church. And so in that way, too, we are not disconnected. This is not an abstraction for us to apply to ourselves. There is no second step to this, um, contrary to kind of how Melanchthon wavers later in his Lotzi, where now the will says, oh, okay, I can go along with that. Um, but the Spirit is given, and the absolution is proclaimed, and it is so. Um can I reject it? Sure, but that's not where the emphasis is on. It is on this uh, reality being given to me, this historic Christ, this actual person um, who is still preaching through those he calls to preach, but also through parents in the home and, and, and things like that, the mutual consolation of the brothers, and, uh, and gives this spirit to us. Uh, and that's kind of the joy even of uh, gathering together on Sundays, is we may feel a little bit crazy sometimes in the world or out of place, but we gather as those who uh, who have the breath of life, and God breathes new life into us. Um, 
week after week. This is, so to speak, um, spiritual CPR, right? And the the person, uh, if you're giving CPR to someone, you don't say, here, um, assent to receive this breath of mine. Uh, you have a person who is in desperate need of life, and then Christ gives it, which is what he does for Thomas, and it's what he does for us as well. Yeah, I, let's go to that verse 31, but these are written that you may believe. Um I was just looking up the Greek there to see what but was. So maybe I'll start with 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe. Um, it's, it's a soft, it's a death there. I, in the, in the Greek, I thought maybe it was, it was Allah, but um, uh, it still stands, but these are written with this person. And then in a, in order that, you may believe. And so the purpose of the word of God connected with the spirit is faith, right? And that may seem obvious to Christians, but not so obvious um, to a lot of people, right? Why were these written? Were these written as just a story? Was this just uh, So I can win Bible trivia. Yeah, or was this written just so that there can be some sort of uh, story that kind of explains this crazy life? Is this just a, a moral code or, yeah, useful or true myth, however you want to talk about that? But this is the avenue that you might believe. These words are written then for me in 2019, that I may believe, and that that belief means that I may have life in his name. It's powerful stuff, right? And then you connect that back to absolution like you did. This is These, these words give life. They literally forgive sins, which takes away death, and the opposite of death is life. Um, and so powerful, powerful stuff, I think, there. And, and not and, disconnected in a way you, as you might get kind of with the neo-Orthodox or with Boltman. Um, not that a lot of our readers maybe have read Boltman, but I read a fair amount of Boltman last year, got on a bit of a kick. Um, because if we're going to criticize people, we should actually probably read them so we can do so well. But not either as in these words now take on their own existential meaning for you now, mm-hmm. detached from the history, but these words mean nothing apart from the historical Christ that they're being attached to here. Yeah, and that's the connection there of, with Thomas, right? Right. That- this this actually happened. There's empirical evidence there, and so I think, I do think there's some apologetic uh, things to think about here. With, um, you know, uh, do I give empirical evidence or rational evidence to the skeptic? Well, well, Jesus did, right? Yeah. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that I should or I can't. But there's an example of that. But it was never detached from the Word of God and the Spirit. Um, And that's kind of a false dichotomy sometimes we put in. Like, if you're going to give empirical evidence, therefore you're not letting the Spirit have its way. Well, Jesus didn't do that. Paul didn't do that. They didn't have that artificial divide there. It's kind of one of those things. Jesus doesn't, like, stand outside the door and be like, Thomas, picture me. Right, yeah. See me, imagine me as resurrected. He comes and says, here I am, dude. Right. Touch me. And and that that's a dividing. If I divide the word of Christ from Christ, I'm very close to dividing Christ, for he is the word. And I don't want to take that too far, but you kind of get what I'm saying, that it's just... And, and and so theologically, yes, we have to we have to say, okay, it's only the spirit. It wasn't the evidence per se. I get that. But when you have a skeptic in front of you, like Thomas, you give him everything you got, um, and then later, then you can explain. Just so you know, I was doing pre-evangelism there, <laughs> and then I was doing evangelism. Right? You don't. You, that doesn't stop you from bringing everything you got. Um, now, there's there's caveats there, of course. Um, 
but people who throw away apologetics uh, uh, just offhand don't even want to talk about it. Um, it's just not, ha haven't really thought through some of these things. And one of these, there are plenty, one of these examples, I believe, is the week, uh, the Sunday after the first uh, Easter Sunday, where Jesus literally gives empirical evidence to Thomas along with the Word of God. And I think maybe if we just wrap it up, then, Mike, unless you have something else. Um, this is really, you know, the name of the podcast, Let the Bird Fly, really comes from this notion of, well, when everything has been done, um, when uh, when Christ has done all the work he came to do, um, when we have now a world given back to us, well, what is letting the bird fly? It's And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and... Uh, and he gives the absolution. That is letting the bird fly, um, knowing that the Spirit now works through the proclamation of the historic person and work of Christ. Um, and it's that that we go forward in. It's that that we live in. It's that that we gather to hear on Sundays and whatever day of the week. And so um, hopefully this will come out before Easter too. So uh, if it does come out before Easter too, hopefully this inspires some of us who might be tempted to kind of take that week off because we went to church, we got credit for three or four days in Holy Week, um, to make sure we go and hear and rejoice in um, the breath of life that is ours every day of life, that baptismal um, word of forgiveness that, that is ours in absolution. And so uh, people and, and, and pastors, uh, as you, you get Thomas set before you here, uh, with Thomas, who then went forward, by the way, and did let the bird fly, right? He ends up getting put to death for the faith and takes the gospel. Um, it appears to the ends of the earth at his time, as best he could. Uh, I, I pray that we, uh, we may do the same. Every evening when the sun goes down, get my body and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk. I'm just a drink. I set him up. Another round, set him up. Another round, set him up. Another round, one more round, get me down. Don't care what the people are thinking.